All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. And today, I'm with my co-host, extraordinaire, Lisa Flicker. How are you, Lisa? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful and so happy to be here. Awesome. It's Friday afternoon, Friday evening for you in New York, Friday afternoon in the Bay Area. We just spoke with Kabir Seth. Kabir is the Chief Operating Officer at Presidio Bay Ventures based in San Francisco, California. And they are doing some big stuff. They're like, I've heard of them in the past prior to speaking to Kabir. And they seem very, they're doing a lot of life science stuff in San Carlos where I live. And I really had no idea who they were, but they're, I mean, they're young. It's a young firm, right? Young firm, a lot of energy. Seems like they're, they're focused on a mission, which is nice. I, I think they have the, the makings of a future, very successful entity. Let's watch them. Yeah, they have. A, they're really focused on technology. They have this amazing scholarship program he talks about. So, uh, please listen. Uh, also, please like the the podcast, rate and review the podcast, share it with your friends. Everything helps. And feel free to shoot us an email if you have any questions or comments. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. So, thanks everyone. Have a great weekend, and please enjoy the podcast. All right, Kabir, how you doing today, man? Thanks for coming yeah, on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. How was your golf game in North Carolina? <laughs> Did you win? Uh, no, uh, it was a pretty bad performance on my part, uh, but it was it was great. It was hot, hot and rainy. Uh, North Carolina summer weather. Can't beat it. That's North Carolina. Nice. Where were you playing? Uh, Pinehurst. Yeah, nice. definitely, uh, definitely. Look, I'm, I don't, I can talk your ear off about golf, uh, but that's for another time. But uh, it's a great, great destination. Awesome, man. And so you are the principal and CEO at Presidio Bay Ventures. That's a really great name, by the way. Thank Uh, you. COO. My partner, Cyrus, is a CEO. Yeah, COO. And then Presidio Bay Ventures, it's in the Bay Area. I mean, folks who don't know the Presidio, it's it's an an area in the Bay Area uh, or Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. Um, Can you tell everyone about the the firm and how would you get the name? Yeah, I'll start with the name first. Uh, I think the goal there uh, was to, you know, there are a lot of options when it comes to naming a firm. Do you name it after yourselves? Yeah. Do you name it after city? Do you name it after a geographical feature, uh, like a river or a cliff or a, whatever you want to call it? But I think for us... It's usually it was, named after a color and a, and a, and a co- kind of rock. A, a co- color and a rock. Right, right. right. A color and a river. Yeah. No, I think we... <laughs> it was simply, you know, a lot of it had to do with the sort of... Uh, the genesis of the firm, which was uh, really my partner Cyrus, who came from the federal government, from the General Service Administration. So our first, you know, uh, our first business plan was really centered around building for the federal government, for all the various oh, okay. ag- agencies. So anything you've heard of the FBI, the DEA, the Social Security Administration, CIS, uh, you name it. Um, his background was really procuring real estate for those agencies along sort of the western region of the United States. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, and then so the first iteration of the firm was really doing the exact same thing on the other side of the table. Not many people know this, but the federal government's actually uh, one of the, if not the largest tenant in the country. Um, yeah. and, and they're everywhere. They have to be, right? They have to serve as a population. And so for us, it was, a, as a firm, getting off the ground, a great thesis to uh, wrap our efforts around um, and leverage the sort of domain expertise we had around the procurement process and go and chase after these RFPs all over the country. Um, you know, whether it was as far west as Guam, as far east as Lake uh, Louisiana. Um, there was okay, a- so the, they would put out RFPs and you 
Yeah. Every year. Okay. And they, what is the typical like government? What do they look for in their bill? Uh, I mean, it's, it's very, very agency specific. It can be everything. You know, if you're the Social Security Administration, it's sort of your more typical uh, office layout, all the way up to courthouses, uh, federal courthouses, to uh, safe facilities. If you're the DEA and you need a place to, you know, safely secure all the contraband, to have armored vehicles, uh, to have sort of um, uh, clean research facilities. If you're the Veterans, Administ- Veterans Affairs Administration, typically these can involve a combination of research and outpatient clinics, kind of servicing all the um, all the military members, uh, both current and retired. Uh, mm. So it just really depends on on really the agency you're you're going after. Um, and there's obviously pretty strict design and technical requirements that go into these spaces. Uh, so that's really kind of the, the skill set that we brought to it was really understanding uh, how these agencies interact, what their missions involve, um, and then bringing together the right team in place to execute on these on these requirements. Uh, and that's how that's how the company got started. So you know, going back to your question about the name, uh, the Presidio obviously has a long, long sort of history uh, with the federal government, uh, mm-hmm. the Bay being the Bay in San Francisco. And the ventures part was uh, kind of a thought we had very early on. Um, we know what the, ultimately we wanted the firm to grow beyond just, you know, simple sort of, you know, local real estate development. And we really wanted to touch all aspects of real estate, uh, which yeah. we've uh, shown over the years that we're capable of doing. So when you combine the three, Presidio Bay Ventures was a name that sort of transcended either myself or Cyrus or really anybody else's individual on the team and sort of encompassed the whole sphere of real estate, not just, you know, uh, a particular locality or a particular product type or development. Yeah. yeah, when I heard it, I was like, I don't know who these guys are, but they're doing ventures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something's exciting. And, that, and, and, cool. and now we're involved certainly on the more, uh, on the venture side of things. We are involved in, uh, you know. Oh, you are? Cool. Yeah, the prop tech space. We'll, uh, we'll both make, we'll, we'll make early stage investments uh, as well as active strategic advisors to companies in the prop tech space uh, wherever possible, either deploying them within our own portfolio or helping them think about product market fit, go to market strategy, um, kind of well, a lot of these companies, as you can imagine, uh, there's a lot of very, very smart people, particularly from the engineering and sales side, uh, who had success in other verticals and see real estate rightfully so as an industry that's kind of ripe for disruption, given that many of the things we do are the same way they've been done for decades, if not hundreds of years. So right. clearly a lot of opportunity, but it's also very, very unique in that I think as the prop tech industry has seen uh, in this, what I would call the first cycle it's not as easy of a nut to crack. Uh, there's, it's a very, very fragmented market from a skill set standpoint, from a product standpoint. Uh, how do you successfully achieve scale uh, in a way that's not super capital intensive, which our business, of course, is. Um, so certainly a lot of challenges that firms uh, have seen. And so wherever we can be helpful, either from a fundraising standpoint or more of a strategic execution standpoint is where we like to get involved. So what's your favorite of all the portfolio <laughs> companies? Tell us the you can't tell. You can't tell the name. You know, there's, there's there are certainly a lot of success stories out there. Um, again, I'll, I'll sort of caveat it by saying, you know, we, while we are involved in the venture side, we are not a professional venture investment firm, right? There's core competencies at the end of the day. And so I would say the real success stories you've seen, whether it's uh, VTS, whether it's Plan Grid, or any of the other companies that have actually achieved scale and success, they have gone, I would say, the route of, you know, traditional sort of venture and growth financing. Um, a lot of the companies, uh, I can name one of our portfolio companies that recently exited IOTIS, uh, that was in the smart home space. Uh, oh, it's cool. a place, yeah, it's a place where we saw, again, a lot of fragmentation and certainly a lot of space for 
there to be multiple successful entrants. Um, we like the we first and foremost love the the, the management team and the leadership team. Say Pike is uh, tremendous at what she does, uh, and she built a great product. And uh, more importantly, from our perspective, given that you're they were targeting apartment building owners uh, and managers, how they navigated the 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 sort of sales and customer service and account management aspect of it was what stood out to us. And they were just recently acquired by ADT, the security systems company. Oh, nice. Uh, just help, help roll out. And then another company that I'm particularly excited about just because of its potential uh, to sort of reimagine the way we live and interact with spaces is a company called Ori Living. Uh, we're not I've heard of that, in, I think. Yeah, they're based out of New York. Um, uh, came out of sort of MIT's uh, design labs. And it's just, uh, you know, people have been trying to crack this knot of uh, modular furniture and how do you really maximize use of your space, particularly when you're up against uh, real constraints in today's environment with rising construction costs, rising land costs. Uh, how do you extract as much efficiency as you can out of your buildings and the sort of products they've come up with, again, on the capital intensive side, but they are a premium product of which I think there are very, very few comparable competitors. Uh, and more importantly, they've thought through the sort of uh, challenges and the life cycles of real estate development. So their whole goal is to come in at the very early stages with a developer like myself um, or any other multifamily developer and say, look, let's, let's put our pencils down. Let's reimagine how these residential units can be laid out. We've been building them the same way for, again, decades, if not hundreds of years. But what if you could have a bed that turned into a conference table? Or what if you had a closet that could essentially com compact in upon itself and leave you open more room for a small That's study? Awesome. So when you start doing that, you know, suddenly the, the 500 square foot studio can actually become 350 square foot studio without losing or compromising on functionality or living experience. Uh, and that itself is well worth the investment in their products, which as I said, are, can be a premium, particularly at this early stage in their, in their, uh, development until they reach truly significant scale. Um, but it's certainly, uh, for us, a very inspirational way to go about thinking about our own buildings. And we've deployed about 50 of their units in our Springline project in Menlo Park. And you're seeing that leasing velocity, uh, respond accordingly where you have tenants coming in and saying, particularly now that people are working from home more frequently, uh, people have dogs, people are starting to you know, raise families. How can I extract more utility out of my space without having to go through the brain damage of moving or, you know, probably more realistically come up against the financial constraints of buying a home when you have to move from a unit to a single family home. If you can eke out an extra year, um, not only is that obviously more appealing to the tenant, but for us as an operator, that's another year of leasing occupancy that we don't have to deal with in terms of vacancy and turnover costs and so on. I love that. Yeah. I hope they have space for babies. That's, that's probably the biggest, the biggest problem. <laughs> yeah. The, the, right? the modular baby crib. Yeah. We should talk to them about that. Right. <laughs> You'll see at least it's in New York. Um, I'm in, I'm down in, on San Carlos. So like, there's a lot of like prop tech, there's so much technology here. There's a lot of prep. Like this is like the hub. If they like, I'm like invested in prop tech. I don't mm -hmm. know, you know what I mean. It's just, it's just part of the thing. Uh, it's like a rite of passage for the Bay Area, I think. Right. But those sounds very interesting. So as far as like the actual sticks and bricks side of things, like tell me how you and you tell me how you started the firm doing, and then you you don't do that now. You're not doing government buildings now, right? Like how, yeah, we we, we right? moved away. We moved away from that from a development standpoint. We're actually getting back into the government side of things uh, to complement the development side of the business. Instead, we're focusing on the government platform as a source of income, particularly right now, yeah. um, as uh, uh, with the volatility in the markets and the sort of challenges that development faces, not just in the Bay Area, but all over in terms of construction costs, 
labor shortages, rising interest rates. You know, how do we provide an avenue for our investors to still have exposure to real estate in a way that's still safe and secure and stable? And so we're still we're still invested in the in the government asset class from an income standpoint, but from a development standpoint, um, we've sort of moved away from that. And primarily, we operate in uh, three major food groups, being multifamily, Class A office, and life science and R and D. Those are three. Yeah, you guys just. I just. I was reading that you guys. I mean, I'm in San Carlos, and you're in San Carlos now too. Yeah, right? yeah. Ha- happy, happy to be there. Uh, we uh, made our first investment in San Carlos with the redevelopment of the Honda dealership. Probably, probably remember that. You can see the big Honda sign from the 101. Uh, that's under construction right now. It's 150,000 square foot life science project. And since then, uh, we've continued to grow that sort of our footprint there in the city and in, in totality working at about a little over 1.2 million square feet, um, in that sort of industrial tract. It's been a, it's a great city to work in. The city itself is very, um, and I say this in a, in a, in a generally positive way, pro development in the sense that they see the opportunity that they have, uh, given their geographic location in the peninsula. Oh, and yeah. at the same time, they understand the needs of the community. And so it's not just a, hey, let's just let everybody build what they can. It's let's do this intelligently. Let's let's have a proper conversation between the community leaders, the neighbors, the residents, the local businesses and the developers who want to make this investment. And let's come up with a win win situation for all. And uh, I think the, the leadership of uh, the city of San Carlos has, has, has managed that extremely well, given the amount of investment that's been taking place today. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're converting all that stuff east of. Uh... 92 um into all it seems like all life science parks it's all like old at least it's all like old multi-tenant light industrial yeah. stuff um so yeah and, and, and like i said they're going through it with certainly a long-term vision right they um i'm not sure if you're aware of this but there's currently a moratorium in place right now on the north end of san carlos's industrial district uh our 642 project 642 quarry project is exempt from that just from a timing standpoint but our other two assets are in there and really, it was a chance for the city to kind of just hit pause for a couple of years, uh, understand what the impacts of all this development are going to be, and in return, understand what the loads, you know, demands on infrastructure are going to be, what the demands on childcare are going to be, on school needs, on just about everything else that when you start talking about the thousands and thousands of jobs that are going to, are going to be created, what does that really mean for the city of San Carlos and its size? And, um, you know, we're, we're deep into those discussions with the city. We're, we're helping them while they help us navigate this entire process again in a way that uh, should ultimately lead for a far smoother development process once more moratorium is lifted in two years and everybody has a very clear picture of the path forward i mean i own my place so i love it yeah <laughs> all, all, all i would say is don't move, <laughs> don't move. i'm not going to sell I'll, I'll keep it yeah, um yeah, exactly. is that sort of like your strategy are you you said multi you know, multi-family a couple asset classes but are you like I mean, that's a major market. I mean, this is the Bay Area. It's super expensive to do work here. It's hard to do work here. Are you like, is that kind of your, you're going to A plus markets generally doing work? Or are you, what's your, yeah, I, I think that what's your typical investment or the, development? Yeah, the typical development is funny because I was having this conversation with our team earlier this morning is I think there's just a, there's a Presidio Bay philosophy, which is uh, our view is we're here for the long run. You know, we're fairly young as a firm. Uh, we got our start 10 years ago, but we're still pretty young in comparison to the rest of the industry. And so we're seeing these, our approach on a sort of 20, 30, 40 year time frame. And what that allows us to do is think about our assets a little bit differently. And when we approach development, we're not really chasing after the quick conversions or the quick flips um, of a commercial building 
or uh, or a smaller asset where you're looking at, okay, if we're going to go and spend our time and effort and our relationships, particularly in the capital side, to build something, we're going to differentiate ourselves in as many ways as possible, whether that's from a design aesthetic standpoint, whether it's from a cultural standpoint. And by cultural, I mean the incorporation of art, the incorporation of local community. How do we sort of bring in the neighborhoods into our project as opposed to them being you know, sort of isolated islands of concrete and steel or wood or whatever it may be? Uh, from an operational standpoint, you know, we talked about project. That's a big discussion of ours right now. You know, how do you how can you create the next generation of building operating systems? Because that doesn't really currently exist at this point. Um, so that's kind of what we look for when we go to our developments. How can we differentiate ourselves so when somebody looks at an asset um, or the industry talks about the best in class in a multifamily development or a life science development or a mixed use project, the Presidio Bay projects are kind of top of mind and top of the list for everybody. And it's interesting, obviously, the elephant in the room is the office part of your business. So how is that doing and what do you see happening in office? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly you kind of ignore um, what's in front of your face right now, particularly when you're in San Francisco and you see the data on vacancy rates and the sublease market. You know, San Francisco is one story. And on the other end, you have areas like Menlo Park where we have a Springline asset. And that was 200,000 square feet that started leasing, you know, um, sort of while COVID was still going strong, not that it's completely disappeared. But we're now 100% on nearly 100% leased on 200,000 square feet of office and 100% leased on about 25,000 square feet of retail. You, know, you mentioned office, but retail itself is also suffering. Right. And at rates that are honestly the highest in the country, bar maybe one or two assets in New York. And what does that tell you? It just tells you that, again, for the right product, the right brand, the right placemaking strategy, and certainly the right location in Menlo Park, it hasn't nearly suffered as much from, I would say, the the image uh, problem that San Francisco has at this moment in time, which you know is probably a conversation for another time. Um, all those factors combined, there's still a healthy demand for office if it's got all these factors included. Um, and so we're not necessarily shying away from office uh, right now. Perhaps maybe in San Francisco, um, you know, I'd say conversions of class C to B or A product is not something we would go for right now. Um, but similar to Springline, we have a project at 130 Townsend next to the ballpark. It's extremely well located. It'll be 100,000 plus square feet in totality, but itself split into much smaller uh, suites and sort of identity differentiations between how the building is designed. Uh, and when you sort of start again, layering in the operational elements, the, the wellness amenities, the the rooftop techs, the retail activation that we're going to sort of bring in ourselves and bring in an operator similar to how we did a spring line. Again, you can create a product that is well-placed and has all the elements of quality that even in a weak market, the sort of premier assets where there's still demand for office space, we're not going to, I think, ever going to make the statement that offices is going away. But if you're in an environment where the uh, sort of checkboxes to move into an office, that list of checkboxes become longer and longer, we're going to meet those. And so we're not going to shy away from it necessarily um, at this moment in time. I love that. I hear a lot of people, you know, a lot smarter than me talking about, you have to make the office more attractive than being home. So what do you do to do that? And, you know, sounds like you're kind of thinking that out of the box way of kind of making that happen. Yeah. And you, and you have, again, you have to have the right ingredients. Like we couldn't do what we're doing at 130 towns and maybe in other locations in the city or elsewhere. You have to have, again, the right ingredients of location, nearby amenities, still believe in the in the 
in the, the continued success and growth of San Francisco, despite its cyclicalities. Um, so I think, you know, with that in mind, and yes, to your point about how do you design an office that actually brings people back in, I think there's going to be some combination of that and certainly some combination of employers themselves also seeing the writing on the wall two years after, um, I guess, more two and a half years after COVID, um, you know, productivity, as much as we'd like to believe that it sort of remained steady, perhaps that's the case for certain elements of a company. But uh, for many others, I think people are sort of realizing that getting back into the office uh, from a productivity standpoint is critical. And I think you'll start seeing that play out more and more, even if it's not publicly stated, um, firms are quietly coming back. And you're seeing that data represent itself in uh, Baybridge traffic metric numbers, BART ridership, um, Muni in San Francisco bringing back additional bus lines that were previously sort of retired during COVID. So uh, I think a lot of that should play itself out. It'll take a little longer than expected, but certainly the next year or two. How are you capitalized? Are you do like a fund structure? Are you raising per deal? And <laughs> yeah. Or what do you... yeah, we uh, we've had this ever since we started. Had this debate. Obviously, when you start, um, it's pretty tough to come out of the gate with a with a fund without sort of a prior track record. And so that kind of forced us to get uh, creative um, with the relationships that we've built over the years. And now we're certainly in a position where I think if we wanted to, we could certainly go out and raise a fund. But I think mm. to boil it down simply it's far more fun for us to continue developing the right relationships with different capital partners. Cause there's look, there's a lot of money out there, particularly in mm-hmm. real estate and everybody's got a different flavor of what they want to invest. And everybody's got different risk appetites. Everybody's got different um, approaches, you know, to, to the role. And for us, it's, it's fun to continue developing these different partnerships and what that allows us to do uh, sort of, I would say um, sort of counterintuitively when the right project does come up, we can be far more aggressive knowing that we have the right capital structure in hand and be feeling very, very confident in our conviction about the deal because we know that this is the perfect combination of capital and development expertise going into it. You know, the fund obviously has its benefits. You have scale, you have the ability to sort of look at more projects at once, but you also have, you have a bit of a gun to your head. You have to put that money out that may force you to make decisions you may not necessarily want to take. You may find yourself caught in, you know, odd market timings. And so, there's always the trade-offs of both. For us, you know, we enjoy the flexibility right now of having to be able to capitalize on projects on a sort of deal-by-deal basis. Uh, yeah, as I think to answer your question, like who who that really entails, um, you know, as the projects have gotten bigger and bigger, um, obviously the, the scale of capital sort of pushes you into the institutional world. Um, so, you know, don't want to sort of name names on right now, but uh, sort of household names on the institutional side all the way down to some folks, you know, firms that people may never have heard of because these are um, they're institutional sized, either family offices or ultra high net, high net worth individuals who want to maintain under the radar, which is great for them and great for us. You know, um, as long yeah. as we're we have to, the same type of clients, we have big institutions and yeah. people that no one's ever heard of before. Yeah. And then you're the COO. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Lisa and I fill a lot of COO, CFO, CEO roles like we know. People always say, what is this, you know, I'm working on a similar role right now in the Bay Area, actually, and they're, what do they do? It's like everything. Like you never, <laughs> yeah. you don't train to be a COO, right? right. Yeah, I think there's, a, yeah, and, and it's funny, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to say this, the title of, of COO for us is, it's more, um, it's, it's really for a lack of a better term than anything. Right. Um, because to your point, it is, in particularly a firm our size, and particularly when you consider that we, again, we're 10 years in, but the firm's culture and the firm's values 
will evolve and have evolved over time. Um, and so keeping a very close eye on that, because as I mentioned, we do have a 20, 30, 40 year horizon. Um, you know, so it, that really entails everything from obviously the deal level execution to HR, to, you know, operations, asset management, accounting, Podcast. marketing, podcasting. Um, it's, it's just about everything, which is which is fun for somebody of my, my personal temperament. You know, it's uh, being able to do a lot of different things in any given day is uh, definitely a plus. And it's uh, something I look forward to when I wake up in the morning. What's your background? I mean, do you, how did you get it? Like, learn real estate? Like, tell us about, about you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we touched upon this at the beginning. Background, uh, grew up in Dubai in the Middle East and came to the Bay Area for college. I went to UC Berkeley in an undergrad. Did you, were your parents involved with real estate at all? No. No. And, and I'll, again, I'll be the first to admit people always ask, well, if it wasn't your parents, then oh, it must have been Dubai and all the big buildings that made you think about real estate. And I said, no, no, not really. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, again, it was, uh, I kind of fell into it um, coming out of college. So coming out of college, my first job was in investment banking, uh, M&A, sort of capital raising, uh, which is a great sort of introduction to the professional working environment. Um, and, uh, really it's, uh, you know, I mentioned my partner Cyrus, he, he and I've known each other for many, many years. We actually both grew up in, in Dubai together, uh, okay. and reconnected in, in 2012, uh, a few years after I'd graduated and, you know, he's coming out of the federal government. I was looking to do something other than invest in banking, other than sort of a traditional, uh, nine to five job. And, uh, it was sort of a, a meeting of the minds at the right time, uh, to be honest. And so, you know, to answer your question about real estate, I didn't really know, a whole lot about it going into it other than it's a great asset class and i'll be very honest selfishly i thought it was a great way to build sort of long-term sort of wealth and but more importantly it was a combination of the economic drivers plus the ability to just build something not not in the literal sense of building a building which is obviously great um but to build a company uh that that sort of always that that challenge was very appealing to me and being in the bay area it, it was hard to avoid it obviously seeing the the pace and growth of, of companies getting minted every single day. Um, so that was really it. And then everything else that came along with it, the architectural side, the design side, the, the construction side of things, uh, the finance side of things, all of these uh, are just, I mean, fascinating industries in and of themselves. And every day I'll always make the statement, you know, we have a scholarship program now. And the first thing I say, my first question I ask is, do you think you could, if somebody gave you a set of plans, do you think you could build a building? And cause I mm -hmm. still, I still like look at a building like a skyscraper or any of the projects we do. And I go, how on earth do people get together and build something so complicated? Because I guarantee yeah. if you gave that to me, I would not be able to do it. <laughs> so uh, it's, 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 well, yeah. when you're, yeah, sorry, I was going to say, when you see what the, the people that build it and what the process is, sometimes you're like, do I really want to stand on this? It's incredible. You look, you look like a 50 story building and like, wow, that is absolutely plumb and absolutely straight for the most I know, part. I can't believe and it's still it, standing. It's like, yeah. And I, I, I can't, I can't even draw a straight line between two points and a sheet of paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, it's amazing when you think about it, you know? So I think that, that in and of itself over the, as the years have gone by, I think just the general appreciation and admiration for, um, the people and the skill sets that go into kind of building our physical environment today, it's very easy to look back and say, Oh yeah, I love real estate for all these reasons. Uh, back then, you know, it's certainly the calculus was a little bit different, um, but mm. it's fortunate the way things have worked out in that sense. 
Yeah, and having that two type, you know, the real estate background and the banking background, I'm sure, is super. It's like a perfect combination. It seems. Maybe if you had like an engineer, maybe too. That could yeah. Be well, well, I'll, I'll I'll say this. My dad was my dad's an extremely talented uh, uh, sort of um, lost treasure to the world from a design and architectural standpoint. My grandfather was a civil engineer. He built bridges in India. So again, all these elements were certainly there in the back of my mind. Uh, my dad went to architecture school in India, and then. My granddad said, you know, you should probably reconsider. There's not a lot of money in architecture. <laughs> so right, he went out. Yeah. And then I had for a second design, you know, thoughts of going to architecture school. And I just, my dad didn't even tell me that. I just remember what my granddad told him. And I said, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> so uh, I think it was always there. And I kind of, you know, if I have a second career uh, in the future, maybe that's, that's on the cards. Uh, architect sounds fun until, yeah, I, I know some architects. And it seems like it's like, I'm tired of like drawing CVSs and like, yeah. Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> You're not always yeah. doing a sexy project. You know? No, that, and I think I think that's that's right. that's part of it, right? I think that that's right. the with all these industries. Um, I think the most important thing is you actually try it, right? As 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 much as you have the opportunity to do so, try and dabble and see what actually works, and see if it's what you've made it out to be in your head. If not, you know, find the next thing. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the reason we do this podcast so people can get no one's You can't really do the job. At least they can hear about like what what it's like to be in real estate and do certain jobs. Um, and my dad's a civil engineer. She so would say architects draw buildings, but we actually are tell yeah. you know, we actually are the ones that scrap the drawings and make it actually work so it doesn't fall over. Yeah. Um so I know that you have been hiring recently. Like what do you I mean, everyone's having trouble hiring. I mean, there's a lot of uh there's more jobs than qualified talent, I would mm-hmm. say, wouldn't you say, Lisa? A hundred percent, yes. So uh, go ahead. there's a big supply demand disparity yeah. these days. And like, what are you seeing as like, I mean, we're recruiters, so we deal with this every day, but you know, it's kind of, it's a little different when you're a recruiter than actual working there. Like, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges? I find most people are, most clients are worried more about the younger folks. Um, some of them haven't even worked in an office ever, you know, they just mm-hmm. come into college mm-hmm. and working remotely. Like, what are you, what are your biggest hurdles you're finding for, what are you seeing in the hiring market and what are like the biggest hurdles you, you're finding? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, look, uh, certainly I think one of the biggest challenges that we've found, and this is honestly, this is a challenge that, um, I face myself again, coming out of investment banking very fast paced transactions, 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 sort of high octane environment. And speaking specifically about real estate development and speaking specifically about the challenges that I'm facing with what we do. Uh, and again, this is no knock on what younger folks want out of their career, but I'd say this element of uh, kind of timing expectations, particularly if you're going into a field like real estate development, which has longer lead cycles. And if you want to get on the development side, one thing I'm always sort of, I always ask very upfront is, are you prepared for the fact that these projects take three to four to five plus years? And that's not to say you're sitting there doing the same thing for three to four, five plus years. They take that long because there's a lot of things happening that have to go into it. And I still deal with new, new situations every day. I'm still learning how to deal with people, how to deal with problems. The question is, are you, when I say you, I'm talking to the younger candidate in front of me, are you prepared to deal with that? And oftentimes they're not. And I don't know what sort of, what, what's that a function of? I don't know whether it's a function of just the faster paced world we live in right now, the sort of access to immediate information, immediate gratification, and sort of a shorter, I'd say, commitment span. That's certainly one challenge that you know I, I face, particularly on the younger candidate side. Um, the other is, 
I'd say, you know, and I, I don't know how else to describe this, but it's sort of, it's sort of, it's related to this concept of the the commitment and patience. I think that I think you need to have in this industry, um, but it's also just on on a pure skill set side, on the qualitative skill set side. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to find folks. Again, when we talk about our projects, they're they're very complex business plans. There's this very, there's many different audiences that need to be spoken to. Whether it's the capital partner one day, whether it's the city council another day, or whether it's an engineering team on another day. Like there, there's a wide range of audiences and a sort of very chameleon type personality you need to be able to take on as a developer to kind of bring all these people together to accomplish the goal that you're doing, which is our role. Like our whole role as a developer is to bring, you know, my partner Cyrus likes to use the analogy that, you know, people ask, what do you do as a developer? He's like, well, have you seen a symphony? Have you seen the conductor? We're kind of like the conductor. We don't have the talent, but we're bringing them all together. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, but, but in order to be able to do that, you, you that, that itself is a skill set. Um, and that's, that's been very challenging because, uh, again, when you're young, um, you know, uh, you don't appreciate, um, and I, I speak as though I have all the wisdom of the world, I'm only 35, but at least sitting here now 10 years later, I can say with confidence that um, I have to be a master of many, many, many different things in order to do my job effectively. Uh, and it's hard to sometimes get that across, and it's hard to sometimes get that from younger folks um, who, again, just need to sit and practice and practice and practice and make mistakes and be willing to learn and be curious about what else, what else, okay, I know this, but what else do I need to know to be better? Okay, now I know that, now what else do I need to know? Like that sort of, that's a function of somebody's internal sort of drive and an inner curiosity, um, mm. which, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's, an, if it's an as much supply anymore, um, perhaps as it used to be. Gotcha. And it's always hard to tell if that person can has that core skill, right? Yeah. So when you sit with somebody who's young, it's, you know, there's the inexperience versus the, you know, that inner drive, that inner passion. Well, look, and I, and I get it, particularly, and I think a lot of these challenges can sort of be traced back to the pressures, I think, that we face in the Bay Area from a cost of living standpoint, from even just a... I don't want to say FOMO standpoint, but you look at the technology industry and you kind of see like just the other day, Figma gets bought for $20 billion by Adobe and they've been around for really five years of operation, but a few years before that. And let's just take the cost of living as an example. Like I, I don't fault people for wanting to look for the next best opportunity to try and get to the point as quickly as possible where they can start a family or they can increase the standard of living. It's, it's sometimes just takes longer than, than, people are prepared to to sign up for, right? And I think, you know, uh, again, that's just, I can only speak for my experience here. I don't know what it's like in as much in other markets. Yeah, and people, when they start a career, they may, like, I, I was going to be a lawyer and I worked as a, at a law firm and I was like, I hate this job. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know, people can start out and realize, you know, Lisa started as a public accountant. Well, yeah. I'm going to be an accountant. She hated yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So you were a banker. So you don't really know yeah. the first couple of years until you get, you know, Oh, 100%. I think, I think, and I think, I think that's, and I think that that's a huge challenge too. Like, kind of, um, despite the the four year education path that many of us are are convinced of taking on, I don't think you necessarily come out the other side of that <laughs> any smarter than, or put it this way, maybe smarter, but definitely not wiser than when you entered. So, and you also don't learn what each job entails. So, as my daughter is going to college and and friends, children. I tell them, listen to the podcast. You get a chance to at least hear from all these different executives 
and hear what their day-to-day job really is, yep. which is why we need to hear what, what your day-to-day of the, C- of the COO, what are some of your favorite parts of your job and your least favorite? Who? Uh, I can't say there's, look, there's always going to be the stuff that, um, this, this is something, again, after 10 years of doing this, you sort of, again, you can look back and uh, I don't want to say justify, but you sort of, you find, you find meaning in what you do, right? So the, what I always try and practice, which is even if it's the most like mundane thing, even if it's updating our, like for me, like a particularly you know, mundane task is making sure that every year, you know, our tax returns and all our partnership forms to our investors are distributed. That sounds know, great. Time. That sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> I could easily, I could easily be very cynical about that process, and certainly I have to be able to efficiently outsource that and staff and have the team to do that. So I'm not the one doing it, but I still have to oversee it and make sure it happens. Right? Again, you, I could look at that and very cynically say it's very mundane, or I take the perspective of, hey, ten years ago you didn't have any investors to give partnership returns to, <laughs> so you know, be mm, grateful. That's right. Yeah, you know, be, be grateful you're here now, and you have a hundred to deal with now. Maybe you should try and have two hundred next year. So. You know, I try and find even the stuff that doesn't give me as much perhaps like creative or strategic joy at the moment. You find the meaning in it, particularly when you're in an executive position and you're building a business. Uh, you have to, right? Because that attitude then seeps into obviously not just the people who are directly responsible for executing on it, but everybody else around you. I can't show up in the office and be a grump uh, <laughs> about the things that I have to do. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and things that, again, and that includes the things like HR. You know, my team always jokes with me. They're like, Kabir, like, why don't you? Why are you like the HR officer? I said, well, to some extent, I kind of have to be, right? Particularly this early stage, me and Cyrus both have to be pretty involved with who we're bringing to the firm. It's pretty critical at this stage that, you know, the people we bring in today are going to be the leaders of the company in the future. Um, so that part is critical. And yes, the interviewing process can take time and it takes, it takes time out of my day. And it means I can't do something now that needs to get done. But again, there's, there's joy in the fact that somebody comes to the door and says, I've heard about, I've heard so much about you guys. I've heard about all the cool projects you're doing and they may be coming from a pretty large brand name company. And I'm sitting there going, wow, like five years ago, I was having a bang on people's doors and <laughs> you know, find the right candidates. And now they're coming to me. So it's like, it's all, it's all about kind of, I think, just kind of appreciating what we have. Um, and then, yeah, so the typical day involves, uh, you know, we're very involved um, still on all of our projects, uh, both myself and my partner. And so, uh, we're always checking in and cause there's a lot going on, particularly on whether it's the redevelopment side, the construction side and the stabilization side. Uh, there's always something where we work very collaboratively with our team. Uh, we sort of, the team, the coal company split into pods, depending on which project we're talking about in any given moment. Um, so we're sort of stepping in and, and just helping, you know, the team's very, very capable at this point of running them, the products, uh, on their own. And we sort of like stepping in to sort of add creative input or strategic input. That's nice. You have people in place now. You can just let go of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's look at, at the end of the day, that's the only way we can continue to scale. Right. At this point, our, at this point, our job, um, you know, I think we've done a good job of getting the business up and running and setting the right foundations, which we're always tweaking and strengthening, but that part is now in place. And now the next phase of our responsibilities, the company is to make sure we're bringing in, you know, the next level of projects and the next stage of partners to help us become eventually what we hope to be in the next five to 10 years. Um, and in order to do that, we have to have the right team in place and, uh, you know, are very proud of the team we've built. It's, uh, I would say it's very atypical, um, again, from an experience and sort of age standpoint, we've, we've always say we, we never hire for a particular resume or a particular background. It's really the person coming in and it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like it's, it's the folks who, um, 
have that curiosity to maybe they came from an architectural firm and they don't want to get more exposure to the development side or maybe they came from a brokerage firm and now they want to get more involved in development. I rarely meet people who have the exact skill set that we need for a particular role. It's typically folks coming in from something very close to it or adjacent to it, but want to sort of test their skills and test their capabilities in ways that they haven't been tested before. What about... Um... You mentioned the next five years and you, you know, you said you're in this for the long haul. Like what, what do you, what are like the immediate kind of plans? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, immediate plans right now, I mean, especially where we are in today's environment, um, it is obviously we're not immune to the challenges of like, you know, you know, financing projects is definitely getting more and more difficult. We were fortunate to have a pretty diverse set of projects in our portfolio that have at least two to four years of sort of execution runway. So I think for now, at least sitting here the next three months until now in the end of the year, let's make sure those projects are in the best position possible to enter their next phase of development, whether it's 130 towns in getting that finance so we can begin construction in Q1 of next year, whether it's 642 quarry, which is making sure it gets titled and breaks around by next summer. There's pretty significant projects in the pipeline that we just want to focus on right now before we really turn our attention to any sort of major new, um, uh, major new developments uh, in the beginning of 2023. Well, Kabir, you're doing a great job, but are you ready for the hot seat? <laughs> Absolutely. Seed is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Lay it on, lay it on me. Lisa loves the hot seat. You want to go first, Lisa, on the hot seat? You know what? I want to learn how to speak the way you speak. The hot seat. <laughs> uh, w- w- what, what way is that? <laughs> <laughs> just put the microphone in your mouth. Stay tuned. Listen next month. I'll have a microphone and I'll be uh, you should. I'll be hamming it up right alongside Chris. So book or podcast recommendation, anything you listen uh, to or enjoy reading? Uh, I, I love reading uh, an overflowing library at home uh, podcast. I'm like kind of just getting into I'm kind of like a reading snob in that way. I've always preferred like the physical book, but the uh, book is so it. much better. I yeah, I'm, I'm, one, I'm one of those people for sure. I'm, you know, when, when, when we moved homes right now, I had like 15 boxes just full of books and didn't know where to put them. Uh, the most most recent one uh, I read that I really liked was, um, and I kind of switch between like fiction and nonfiction. When nonfiction gets too depressing, then I'll go to fiction. Um, right. yeah. kind of more, and I'm, I'm not really as big of a fan of kind of like the, the sort of business books and the self, self-help books. But one that was really good, I think just from like a lifestyle perspective, was a book called Why We Sleep. Um, I'm forgetting wow. the author's name, but he's a, He's a professor out of Ber- he's a sleep professor out of Berkeley. Runs one of the country's um, most prominent and well-known sleep labs, 
Uh, and it's just, it's kind of fascinating. You know, you never really stop to think like, why do we spend a third of our day in bed? Um, and we always wonder, and we always, you know, I certainly speaking for myself, I've always said, oh, if only I had a pill where I didn't have to like sleep as much, I'd do so much more, I'd be out and about. Uh, and then you, I'm, I'm just a very curious person by nature and uh, I'm very curious about the human body and uh, the physiology and neurology. And so this book really dives deep into that uh, from the perspective of sleep. Um, and it's pretty fascinating to the point where as soon as I, you know, turn the last page, kind of turn to my wife and say, that's it. No more TV after 9 p.m. We're going to bet. She's like, I'm taking that book away yeah, from you. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I definitely need to follow my own advice. So I'm not very successful, but it's it's still pretty fascinating. And particularly if you're, uh, you know, again, at my age where, you know, people are having a young family and the effects of sleep on, on particularly children. Um, it's uh, it's really fascinating. It is. Yeah, sleep's amazing. I didn't sleep well last night. <laughs> but I'm like, I have, I was good. I, you know, sleep, sleep. Uh, what is it called? Sleep hygiene, the big one, and not what, not no screens and yeah, all that shit. Um, yeah. What advice would you give to anyone looking to start out in real estate development? Like, say somebody coming out of college, or they are a banker, and they're like, "Shit, I really love what this guy's doing." Like, what advice would you give them? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think it's probably a you know a good sort of plug, at least on my end, to kind of talk about our scholarship program a little bit. Uh, oh yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, I was yeah. Forgot to mention that. Yeah. Um, so it's something we started in 2021. Um, you know, for us, uh, obviously, there's when we think about our firm, you ask the question why we call it Presidium Ventures. I said we want to be something beyond just a, you know, a, a very focused developer. And for us, as we look around our developments, we, we talk a lot about the impact they have in the community, the changes they can bring to a neighborhood. And so we started taking it one step further. Um, particularly um, uh, following sort of the, the the events that followed after the, the killing of George Floyd, we looked at ourselves and said, okay, what can we do beyond just saying our, our developments have a physical impact on the community? For me, education uh, is uh, a very sort of core passion of mine. You know, I, I mentioned to you, Lisa, earlier that, you know, I came, I, I had the, the good benefit of my parents being able to send me to California all the way from Dubai for education. By virtue of going to Berkeley, I was able to move to San Francisco. San Francisco, I got my first job, picked up the skill sets I needed to do what I'm doing right now. And none of this really would have been possible without sort of like this core concepts of a solid foundation education. Um, and so one, with that sort of sort of seed of an idea, um, realized, you know, I made the analogy of us being a sort of a conductor in an orchestra. And I realized as a developer, we kind of sit in the middle of uh, a lot of different very, very complicated and very, very skilled professionals, whether you're an architect, whether you're a contractor, whether you're an engineer, uh, a banker, a lawyer, uh, a policymaker, uh, we touch all these things by virtue of our role. And so when you take that one step further, realized, we realized we had the ingredients uh, for a pretty unique program that I was personally surprised uh, didn't really exist for um, folks sort of earlier on in the career. And I'm talking about like juniors and seniors of high school or first year in college. Um, and then, so when you marry that up with the fact that real estate itself as an industry, I think we can all agree it's, it's doesn't really score very highly on the rankings of diversity. Um, we paired this concept of creating, um, sort of an introduction to real estate, really an introduction to career pathways, networking and mentorship opportunities to students from typically or historically underrepresented and underinvested neighborhoods in San Francisco. Um, and so what it is, the scholarship, it's a 10 week program where we work right now, we work with a nonprofit partner to source the students. Um, again, these are students typically from hundreds of you at Bay Point, um, Outer Mission in San Francisco, who 
are are available during the summers where they otherwise would have to maybe get a job to support their families um, or otherwise be preoccupied. And we offer um, exposure to all the different pathways within real estate development. We talk about uh, what it means to be an architect, what it means to be a contractor, what their role is. It's not just, I think part of the challenge is when you're a young person, you may hear about these fields, but you really think of them in isolation. You don't really appreciate that, you know, for the most part, you're working with many, many different industries, many different fields. And the world and the work environment is far more fluid than I think you realize as a as a young professional. Like you, you grow up thinking, I have to be a lawyer or I have to be an engineer. And it's like, right. well, you don't really first of all, you don't even know what those what those things mean, right? You don't really know what it means <laughs> to be a lawyer and architect. And second of all, that's not exactly true. And so I think what this program is really, really helpful at doing is sort of flattening the work landscape to a large extent to show that, you know, particularly when you think about real estate as an avenue to impart real change in your community, which is one of the main sort of driving philosophies behind the program when you consider the the neighborhoods these students come from. If you want to make an impact in your community, there's actually a wide variety of ways you can do it. And this umbrella of real estate brings together about at minimum 10 to 12 different disciplines that you can immerse yourself into. And so the program takes you through these disciplines and culminates in a case study where we actually work on one of our own projects uh, in the city. And we give the students free reign to sort of reimagine what their development would be. And along the way, they not just get to exercise their creative juices, they get to, you know, design residential buildings and office buildings, but they also learn we don't shy away from the real world constraints. You know, one of the frequent sort of challenges of developing in San Francisco, for example, is this concept of affordability, where a lot of community groups have taken this um, hardline stance that it's 100% affordability or nothing. And that completely misses the economic argument behind how buildings get developed in the first place. What does it take to get them done? And we see consistently for the last few years, this amazing sort of realization point where, again, students, they come in sort of um, with the full good intentions. Like we want this building to serve the community and it's going to be 100% affordable. But then we walk them through the financial side of things, the pro forma, and they go, oh, wow, I guess that doesn't work. Uh, And they look at me and they go, well, Kabir, like, what can we do? I said, what do you think you have to do? And they go, well, I guess we just, I guess we have to cut the affordability. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. and, and so we had, you know, one of the students, um, it was really fascinating. The, the parents of one of the students from this year's program uh, came up to me at the end of the final presentations. Um, her, you know, her daughter uh, won, uh, won one of the prizes and she came up to me and said, Kabir, like I have to admit, you know, you're building a project in my district in the outer mission and, I remember when that project came up and I actually stood there and opposed your project at the planning commission. Uh, but now after having seen this, and this is not like a self-serving plug. This is like, this is truly the objective of the program. It's not to say that what a developer wants is right. I quite frankly, you know, one of the things I love most about doing what I do now, having the perspective of growing up in a place like Dubai in the middle East, where you don't have public input, where you don't have as democratic a process is you end up with, pretty terrible outcomes in some of the times. It may happen quicker and it may happen uh, far more efficiently in some respects than it happens in the Bay Area, but the outcomes are drastically different from a community benefit standpoint. And that's something I particularly welcome and appreciate here in San Francisco. I just wish the debate wouldn't be as sort of polarized and as heated as it is. And I think part of what the scholarship program does, and its goal is to bring that kind of awareness and education to students at this very critical age so that they can go back, not only make these decisions about their own career, would also help educate their own peers and their own families. Like, hey, look, we can sit here and complain about what's going on or here are the different ways that we can take action. And when we go and speak to developers, 
we can kind of speak on, on you know, use the same vocabulary and speak the same language because right now that's missing a lot in the discourse um, of development, not just in San Francisco, but any other city where you have this sort of, um, you know, the pressures of affordable housing and uh, lack of community uh, shared spaces and so on and so forth. Yeah, San Francisco. I tough. love that you're doing that. I Thank want to you. join that scholarship program. Yeah, we should we should do an adult version. <laughs> Old people. Uh, but no, the goal is there. Like, look, the way we develop, we say the way we develop um, in San Francisco is obviously the same way you develop in L.A. And forget even L.A., it's the same way you develop in San Carlos and Menlo Park. And, and yes, L.A., Chicago, New York, Boston, you name it, any city. So the goal is to, you know, using this first two years of experience and perhaps this next third year and then replicate the scholarship program throughout where you can, it doesn't have to be Presidio Bay. It doesn't have to be the partners we have here. We can just we can use this curriculum, this model to educate different cities and the players in those cities to do something very, very similar. And ultimately, my goal would be to create a network of these alumni and students who go out. And yes, going back to what I said earlier, are from primarily more diverse backgrounds than what the real estate industry currently has on hand, because that's ultimately going to lead, I think, to just just better outcomes um, as a whole for the industry. That's great. I was going to ask you what your uh, impact the real you, you have on society, but I think you just answered that one. Um, you <laughs> answer two two questions with one with one answer. So, last question, unless Lisa has yeah. any more. Um, what is your most has been your most memorable deal? Oh, like, wow, that was amazing! I can't believe that happened. Um, you know, I'd have to probably say it's. I mean, our Springline project is uh, certainly a marquee one of ours. Um, we took that over in the middle of in the middle of COVID, um, sort of in March of 2020, mid construction. Um, the world had kind of shut down, and it was a time when, if you looked at it again, just a reminder: it's a, it's 200,000 square feet of office, it's 200 residential units, it's 25,000 square feet of retail, massive site. Um, anybody who looked at that and said, you know, "This is this project's kind of doomed to fail." Um, but I think much to our team's credit, and it definitely was a team effort. And this was a time, again, two years ago, we were half the size we were now as a firm. It was literally an all hands on deck type situation, um, where we got on and we, we reevaluated every single aspect of the project. Again, we took it over sort of midway from the previous developers from a design standpoint, from a branding standpoint, a placemaking perspective, an operational perspective, a technology perspective, and yes, even like a community perspective. Um, and it was, it was such a big lift that it's kind of crazy to think we were able to do it, um, in the sort of depths of COVID when we're all working remotely, we're all on zoom. Um, and you're trying to navigate this half a billion dollar project and we come out and we're sitting here today on the other side. Um, and it's, it's, it's all of our efforts have sort of borne fruit, um, in all aspects from a leasing velocity standpoint, lease rate, just a general impact on the community. We have I've met tons of residents from Menlo Park now at, at different points in time. We've been like, oh, wow, it's Springline. I'm so excited for that to be part of the, for the community. I'm so excited to just hang out in the dog park and visit those restaurants and meet yeah. the people who are going to come there. And it's it's been a really, really tremendous success story uh, for us personally and, and professionally. I can't wait for it, man. Yeah. Right by there. Um, awesome. Kabir, thanks for coming on, man. Great to of get course. to know you better. Thank you, Chris and Lisa. Really appreciate having me on.